Well, I refuse to cave in and be nice to Brother Woodcock. <laughs> we maintain a running battle all year long. And periodically we wind up in the same meeting together. And, uh, and I want to tell you, I met Brother Woodcock several years ago. And, and all joking aside, I, I realized something very quickly. And that was he was extremely interested in the Word of God. Uh, not just in the things about the Word of God, but the Word of God. And there's a difference. There's a difference between preaching about the Bible and preaching the Bible. And the first time I heard him preach, I said, I want to hang out with this guy. I want to be around this guy because I want to be around people that are not just reading the Bible, not just um, preaching about the Bible, but that are preaching the Bible. Uh, because I truly believe that accuracy is necessary in preaching, uh, not just throwing something out because it means something to me, but being accurate to the Word of God. And so, Brother Woodcock, thank you. Great message this morning. Great, great way to get started. I uh, hope you had a good night's sleep last night. I've been asked two or three times that I sleep. Uh, come on, be, be honest. It's camp. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I slept as well as I probably do at home, and that is getting up and then laying back down and getting up and laying back down. Uh, Brother Mark and I was talking about uh, getting up at 5, 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I, you know, I, I relished those days when I was a teenager and I could sleep till noon. Uh, but that doesn't exist anymore. I don't know what happens. Uh, I think it's something called melatonin or whatever it is that uh, happens inside of your brain. I don't know what it is, but at 5, 5.30 in the morning, I'm up and ready to go. Uh, but I'm not going to come over here and preach at 5 to 5.30 in the morning. So... <laughs> Take your Bibles if you would, and you can remain seated for just a few moments. This is such a long passage, it's actually two chapters long, and uh, I'm not going to read that. Years ago, I heard uh, some of you may recognize Dr. Tom Malone. I was uh, in a meeting down south, and he got up and he started reading, and he read, and he read, and I'm tell I thought he was going to read the whole Bible. Uh, and uh, after a while, he said, as soon as I find something to preach, I'll stop. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to do that. It's, it's two chapters uh, to really get an understanding of this, and I'll give you the historical gist of it, and that way we'll understand where we're going in a few minutes. And we're actually only going to read one verse, uh, which is our text verse. Uh, but let me start by saying this. I, I think that every pastor that is here, or uh, if you are an associate pastor, or maybe you're a layman in the church, and you've had the opportunity to do premarital counseling, I want to tell you that's something that I dread doing. Uh, I don't like doing premarital counseling, and let me tell you why. Uh, because when a young couple walks into your office, 18, 19, 20s, at that point in time in their life, they are brain dead. <laughs> and let me tell you how I know that. They have that glaze in their eye, and that glaze is not love, that is brain dead. <laughs> And what you're trying to do as a pastor, you're not trying to prepare them for the wedding. That's what they think they're there for, is to prepare them for the wedding. You're trying to prepare them for after the wedding. And, uh, and so I always tell them, you need to understand something. The wedding is wonderful, great victory time, great hallelujah time. But there's a life after that. And there's a life after the honeymoon. It's called bills and children. <laughs> Uh, it's called responsibilities, etc. And I always, I seriously, I always tell a young couple this, uh, that life is going to change and he's going to change. He's going to gain about 50 pounds and he's going to go bald. And I don't say that to the woman. 
I just simply say she's going to get older. Those laugh lines, hence wrinkles, are going to come to her face and she's going to get gray-headed, etc. So it's not going to be like it was the day you got married. It's not going to just be a victory day like the, the wedding day is. Life is going to set in. Now that went really, really well for me until we had a couple in the church and their spouses had passed away and they were both in their upper 70s and they decided to get married. And she asked me if I would marriage counsel them. Now, now first of all, if you're in your upper 70s and you need marriage counseling, you're still brain dead if that's... <laughs> So I told her, I said, I, one time, I won't do the full two weeks, we'll just go in one time and I'll discuss some things that I think you need to know. Now my brain is still running on the 20 year old thing about marital counseling and they came in and I was, <laughs> I was talking to them about you know, some of the things that they were going to face as an older couple and you know, getting their finances all squared away and, and ever how they want to separate that and whatever. And then I, I just I went into numb mode and I went back to my 20 year old counseling and I said now you need to understand something. As time goes on, things are going to change, and he's going to gain weight, and you're going to get wrinkled. And I, they're both in their upper 70s. And, and I looked at him and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, mean that. I didn't mean to say that. And she said, that's okay, we passed that stage a long time ago. <laughs> I've got to tell you one hilarious story. Maybe not too hilarious if you were on the receiving end of this, but uh, we had a couple in our church, and... Uh, they got married in their 20s, and he was an avid hunter. And so they went on their honeymoon in the mountains of Colorado, had a beautiful, beautiful place to stay. And the second night of their honeymoon, his best friend called him. He said, man, you are not going There's a herd of elk of over 150 that are coming in on the property. You know where this is going, don't you? He said to her... I'll be right back. <laughs> he literally, literally, second day of the honeymoon, left and went elk hunting. Now, I want to just stop here and say something. That's a man. That's, that's a stupid man, but that's, that's a man. And so she realized something, that the marriage council was accurate, that things change after the wedding. <laughs> Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to 2 Kings. Chapter 19, 2 Kings chapter 19, we'll catch up to the historical content in just a moment, but let's look over at verse 29. And this shall be a sign unto thee, you shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same, and in the third year sow ye, and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat the fruits thereof. Father, we are so very grateful for the word of God. And Father, thank you today for the good preaching and the good singing, Lord, the good fellowship that we've had together. But Father, as we concentrate now on what you have for us, Father, I pray and I ask you, Lord, once again, if there's one dear precious soul here that doesn't know Christ, that this would be the day of their salvation. And Father, for those who do know Christ, help us to understand, God, that it's not just the victories, it's just not that moment of victory that counts, but it's what happens afterwards. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Well, I'm going to say a name that most of you are probably familiar with in the Bible, and that's the name Sennacherib. 
Sennacherib was a king, a potentate, and he had decided, as they did many times in that day and time, to expand his kingdom and also to protect his kingdom. And so he started to push out of his borders, and he began to attack country after country and city after city. Now, he employed a tactic that is still used today. As a matter of fact, it's a tactic that Antifa and Black Lives Matter are using. And here's what it is. If you create enough havoc and destruction here in this city, the next city, when they think they're going to get the same thing as this city got, they're more prone not to fight. They're more prone to give in. They're more prone to pay you off. Sounds like what we're watching on the nightly news, doesn't it? If you create enough destruction here, then the people down here are going to say, we don't want that to happen to us. We don't want to have to do, deal with this with our families. We don't want our kids to be hurt. We don't want our lives to be disrupted. We don't want our comfort to be disrupted. And so when you come to the next cities, here's what Sennacherib found out. They would pay him off in silver and gold and whatever he wanted just to get him to go on to the next city and the next city. Now, he employed that all along the route until he got to Jerusalem. Now, when he got to Jerusalem, which was a great prize, a great prize of wealth, a great prize of people, etc., that he could use as slaves, he surrounded that city to besiege it. And when he did that, the Bible tells us that they began to taunt the people in the city. Now, let me explain what a siege was. A siege is whenever they would surround this fortified city, and they would basically cut off the water and cut off the food, etc. No one was allowed in, no one was allowed out, unless you were coming out to surrender. And so they would just simply encamp around the city, and they would wait it out until you ran out of food, and you ran out of water, and you ran out of nerve. Now, during that period of time, they would send runners up to the walls, and they would describe to you what they were going to do to you if you didn't surrender and come out of the city. And they would also try to undermine the leadership. This does sound like the nightly news. They would try to undermine the leadership. And here's what happened. Whenever they surrounded Jerusalem, they sent people to the walls, a man by the name of Rabshakeh, and they sent these people to the walls, and they began to yell at the people on the walls and say, don't trust in your God. Don't trust in Hezekiah. Don't trust in the leadership inside of there because they're going to get you in trouble. Come on. We'll take care of you. We will feed you and we will give you water. We will give you all of those things that you don't have right now. Now, I have no doubt about it. There was a temptation just to say, give in, give him what he wants so he'll go away. Let me stop here and say something. They will never go away. Right. It will never be enough. They will continually come back just like this man did. And they will continually come back and ravage those places that did give in to them. And so now the people in Jerusalem have a choice. They have a choice whether to give in and go out and give him all the silver and gold. They have a choice whether to give him the slaves that he wants and so that they can have their comfort. I saw a gentleman on the nightly news in an interview. He was from Russia and had migrated to the United States, had held a very high position in Russia. And he said this. He said that the communist and the socialist 
are not going to try to take over America the way that they have some of the South American countries and the way they have some of the African countries, etc. He said in those countries, whenever they take them over, the people that invited them in, they line them up against a wall and shoot them. No, they don't put you in a position when you invite these people to come into your country, they take you out of your position. But he said, that's not what they're going to do here. They have no plan to do that because they know it wouldn't work here, i.e. Second Amendment. Amen. That's why, literally, that's why they don't want to do that because they know they would have chaos on their hands. And so he said, here's how they have been doing this for years. They take away our comfort and then they give it back and they take it away and they give it back. And every time they take it away, they take a little bit of freedom with it. And then when they give it back, they say to us, if you want your freedom, if you want your this or you want your that, we will give you this amount back. And he said, it's always less than what you had. Well, I want to tell you, I hadn't thought about that before, but that is exactly what Sennacherib is doing. This is an old, old tactic. We will take your water, we'll take your food, we'll take your comfort, and if you want this back, here's what you have to do. Now, we're going to take something away from you called the silver and the gold and the people, etc., that we want, but at the same time, here's what's going to happen. You can go back in your city and be comfortable. I really do like this passage because this bunch said we ain't going to do it. This bunch said our comfort is not going to drive this. Our comfort is not going to drive us into the hands of these enemies because we know what they will ultimately do. They will come back again and again until they strip us of everything that we have. And so Hezekiah lays this out before the Lord. A great prayer. I wish we had time to read that today, but a great prayer from Hezekiah. And when he does this, the Bible says that God steps into the picture and he kills 185,000 of those soldiers, of those enemy soldiers. Now, I want to stop here and say something. That's pretty overwhelming. That's pretty awesome. I hate to use that word so overused, but that truly, that is pretty awesome when you get up in the morning and you're expecting another bad day at the wall and you look outside the wall and all you see are dead bodies of the men. And, and by the way, the word that is used to describe those dead bodies, uh, if you're from the South, you'll understand this. You are dead dog dead. You are doornail dead. I never knew what that meant when I was in the South, but I knew you were really dead when that happened. <laughs> These men are dead, dead. They're not going to get up and fight anymore. They're not going to cause any problems anymore. As a matter of fact, Sennacherib goes back and he winds up being killed himself. And so God literally wipes them off of the map. Now we would all say, hallelujah, that's our God. Praise God for that victory. But I want you to notice something strange. God said, there's something that you've been focusing on, and so therefore you've not been thinking about something. You've been focusing upon the enemy coming in and ravaging you and taking your gold and taking your silver and taking your people and killing off the leadership, but you forgot about something. There's a day after the victory. 
You're going to get up in the morning and it's going to be life again. And what you haven't been thinking about is for two flat years, you've been hiding in Jerusalem and you've been trying to stay away from Sennacherib and his army. And as a result of that, here's what's happened. You haven't been planting. You haven't been sowing. You haven't been tending to the animals because you can't. If you walk outside the walls, they're going to kill you. And so therefore, here's a question. Now Sennacherib is gone. His army is dead. You have no threat from the outside, but you ain't got no food to eat. And you ain't got no water to drink. So now what are you going to do? Do you know what happens so many times when people get married and they have that hallelujah day and then reality starts setting in? They want to go back and recapture the hallelujah day. As a matter of fact, periodically, I've had couples say to me, I think maybe if we just renewed our vows. Let me explain something. If you're in an all-out war with each other, renewing your vows is not going to help anything. When I was pastoring a small church in Missouri, I had a couple that was just literally ripping and tearing each other apart. And one day they came in euphoric. I mean, they were just smiles all over the place. And I thought, wow, what's happened to them? Because they've been in a war for over a year now and just almost for sure they were going to divorce. And so they came in. They're so happy. And after the services, they said, preacher, can we talk to you? We have solved the problem. And I thought, hallelujah, praise God. Something I said to him must, must have registered. <laughs> Their brain dead. <clears throat> they walked into my office and I said, so what solved the problem? She said, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> you think bringing a child into this world, you're going to be getting up at 2 to 3 o'clock every morning, maybe 4 or 5 times, and you think this is going to solve your marital problems? <laughs> You are for sure brain dead. Anyone that's had a child knows this. It is 500 times more responsibility than you had. And you can't take the responsibility of living together on a daily basis. And now you're going to bring a kid into this? Preacher, what happened to them? They were trying to recapture the victory. Do you understand this? That contacting those old girlfriends from high school let me put it this way when you turn 50 60 years old there's going to be a temptation and a serious temptation to start reliving your previous life there's going to be a temptation in fact there's a term for this does anyone know what that term is other than stupid is (laughs) what's that term Midlife crisis. Let me tell you how you know a man's going through a midlife crisis. If he buys a Camaro, a toupee, and a gallon jug of Polydent, he's having a midlife crisis. Because he can't keep his teeth in all the time, and he's trying to drive the car around that he had when he was 16 years old, and he's wearing some goofy toupee that every woman looks at and goes, that is funny. But you'd be surprised. How many in our churches are contacting old flames from their teenage high school years, winding up getting entangled, entwined in something that crashes their marriages and it winds up a total, complete disaster? Why is that, preacher? Because they forgot about something. That the day of victory of the wedding is one day. 
but there are days to live after that. And you have to learn in respect of the victory, not in the victory. Every now and then at our youth camp, we'll have people say this. If we could just take this home with us, they'll have eight, ten young people saved and just a hallelujah camp time. How can we take this home with us? Please listen to this. Don't take that home with you, but when you go home, use that to build on and to move forward with, not just trying to live in that moment of time. Right, right. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm somewhat puzzled and disturbed at the amount of men that I find out that are watching porn on the internet. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm a little bit flummoxed about this. I'm not sure I understand it all. But I think what's happening is this. They're trying to capture something that is exciting that's not real. They're trying to live a hallelujah moment for 15 seconds or 15 minutes rather than learning how to live with their wife and their children and church and they're trying to capture something that is giving them a momentary thrill you're being way too quiet you see the the immediate victory is wonderful I've had the tremendous privilege of being in some victorious services. But when I went back to my church and tried to explain it to people, do you know what happens? You may have a great victorious experience here and make some fantastic decisions, but let me just bring you to reality. When you go home and you say to your family, oh, let me tell you what happened, and they go, huh? That's not the problem. The problem is I'm still trying to live in the victory rather than letting the victory construct where I'm going in the future. The victory is wonderful, and I'm glad we come to meetings like this and have great victorious decisions made, but I'm going to have to go back to my southern roots again in my language. It don't mean sickum. If the if that's what this is all about, just making a decision here and not knowing how to translate that into what happens when I get home. So here's what God said, which totally puzzles me. I just killed 185,000 Assyrians. I totally wiped that problem off the map in just an instant of time. But let me tell you what the sign is. (laughs) My thought would be this. The sign is you just blew that army off the map. The sign is that you killed 185,000 of these people in an instant. The sign is you removed that immediate threat from us. He said, that's not the sign. Here's the sign. You haven't been planting, but you're going to reap. You haven't been sowing, but you're going to reap from this. I I was as puzzled as you are right now. God, what are you telling these people? You're telling them after this great victory that the sign that you're going to be with them and you're going to protect them and that Jerusalem is not going to be taken, the sign for that is seeds in the ground that are growing. It is when God grew up. 
Because here's what he's telling them. He's telling them that I put the seed in the ground, you didn't. I grew it, you didn't. But you're going to receive the benefit from it. Let me put it this way. It's not just trusting God in an immediate victory. It's trusting God for everything that's going to happen after the victory. It's trusting God whenever she does grow older and becomes gray-headed and wrinkled. It's trusting God when the kids do grow up and maybe they give you problems or whatever takes place in their lives. Or you are supporting them for the rest of their lives. You didn't get that. Uh, They're still in your basement. It's trusting God for the things that happen after that. Do you realize this? If you calculate the time on this from the previous chapters, they're going into a sabbatical year. Do you know what a sabbatical year is? No planting. No plowing. Nothing. So here they are, and he's telling them, when you go into this third year, now you're going to be able to go out and do this. But wait a minute, isn't that a sabbatical year? It sure is. But I want to tell you something, that is our God not holding to some religious rigidity, but that's our God saying, I'm going to provide for you even in a religious time. I'm going to provide for you even in a time when you don't even think it could be provision, there could be provision. I'm going to provide for you. That's the sign to this world. The sign to this world is not us having some great victory personally, but the sign to this world is how I live with that afterwards. You should be awake by now. <laughs> the sign is not that something stupendous happens in my life, but it's how that works out in my life after that. I know we're all longing for revival, but I really wonder if we would know what to do with it if it came. If we would know how to live after the revival after the explosion, after all of those things took place, would we really know how to live? Let me give you one of the greatest examples I think has ever been. Douglas MacArthur was a tactical genius, a military genius. And here's why. Not because of his island hopping campaign in World War II to defeat the Japanese, but it's what he did afterwards. Now, not too many people pay attention to that. But I'm telling you, Japan would be a different country today. It would be no friend of ours today if it wasn't for Douglas MacArthur. Because here's what he did. Whenever the Japanese surrendered, it was victory. People were running around the streets all over the country. They were shouting. They were, it was hallelujah. Uh, they, people were kissing and hugging. and it was, They were so glad that World War II was finally over with. Victory, victory, victory. Everybody's doing this. Victory, victory. But Douglas MacArthur knew something. You've got to do something with this country afterwards or you're going to be in trouble. Because these people are going to slide right back where they were if you don't. And here's what he did. He asked for an American publisher to send him cases and cases of Bibles. He asked for 400 missionaries to come from the United States 
to Japan. Here's why. Because he knew something. It's not just defeating the Japanese and World War II is over and the carnage is over with. Now we have to learn how to live with this so that it continues on, not as a disconnect from what happened, not looking back and saying, wow, praise God, I'm glad I was there when that happened, but saying, praise God, I'm glad to see what God has done to provide after this has happened. Men, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble if we don't understand something in our churches and with our families. It's not about what happens at these meetings. It's about what happens after these meetings. Now, if this ignites something, hallelujah, and praise God. But if there's no follow-up on this, and it's not followed up correctly, it will fall by the wayside. Let me say this before we close. He said, you're going to reap where you didn't sow. That's used twice in the New Testament. In John chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 25. And while they are opposites, one is a parable, one is a real incident with a woman at the well. The gist of it is exactly the same. That God can provide where you weren't able to do nothing. Let me give you an example. We got saved because we weren't able to do nothing. We couldn't save ourselves. I am reaping where I did not sow. He is the seed that fell into the ground. That's what he told them. He's the seed that fell into the ground and came up and there was much fruit from that. If you'll notice, he repeats this in this chapter in 2 Kings in just a few verses after this, how that there's going to be root going down and fruit coming up because God does this and you will enjoy the benefits of this. I want to tell you, I'm enjoying the benefits of my grandmother who helped establish a Baptist church in a little town in Missouri and took me to that church and introduced me to preaching. I didn't get saved at that point in time, but it planted something in me. I Listen, I am, will ever be indebted to, to a man who literally stuttered so bad that you couldn't understand two words that he would say. But God, he said God had called him to preach. And I'm not making fun of him. I'm telling you, he had a half an hour radio broadcast in my hometown. You couldn't understand a word he said. But he went out in the country and he took a little church with about five people in it. They wound up, Brother Lottie, with 400 people in that church. And I am not joking, you couldn't understand hardly anything the man would say. But when my mother was 16 years old, she went out there to that church by the invitation of another person and sat there and listened. And I said, Mom, how could you ever understand what he was saying? She said, I couldn't until he got to the end. And he said, you need to be saved. Let me explain something. What a victory that was. But let me tell you how that translates. Years later, in Woodward, Oklahoma, my mother had a little boy. She held him up and said, God, call him to preach. Save his soul. And for 21 years, she prayed. She sought God. She wanted a boy more than anything else. What a victory 
But what a victory it was at 21 that that boy got saved and a little bit later on in 1980 he got called to preach. What I'm saying is, is this, hallelujah you got saved but stop hanging around that pool and keep moving on, growing and maturing in Christ. Don't let that immediate victory deter you from what's coming after that. Let me close with this. He said, here's what's going to happen. The first year you're going to go out and you're going to see crops coming up. Now, don't tell me that they're going to look at that and go, oh, we expected that. <laughs> they're going to see those crops coming up and they're going to go, whoa, that's our God. Because we didn't put one seed in the ground. Second year, they're going to walk out. And they're going to see the seed from that crop that fell back in the ground continuing to grow. And they're going to look at that and say, wow, but we're coming upon a Sabbath year. What are we going to do with this? And then the third year, he said, you go out and you put some seed in the ground and this is what's going to happen. And watch the look on my face. Every one of those Jews went, no. It can't be. Well, let me take us up to the New Testament. Your disciples don't wash their hands right. Um, you're not acting right on the Sabbath day. You're healing people on the Sabbath day, and you can't heal people on the Sabbath day. Uh, excuse me, David got into the granaries. Was that not the counter-argument to this? Let me explain something. He killed 185,000 Assyrians, and I want to say, wow. But I want to say this, that he provides for them for two years without putting one seed in the ground, and now what he's saying to them is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And even though it's going to be a sabbatical year, I'm going to provide for you because now you're going to be involved in that provision. And you have to understand something, that none of this is going to work correctly if you're just standing around going, I want to tell you about the 185,000 that was killed. Oh, I want to tell you, I want to tell you. I was there when it happened. I saw them just collapsing and falling over. And, and, and I want to tell you, it was just such a hallelujah. Yeah, but let me ask you something. What's happened since then? Have you learned to trust him exactly like you did when you said we're not going to give in to the Assyrians we're going to take a stand we're going to stand right here no matter what it cost us and God came in and rescued you from that don't you understand that you're trusting the same God after that you're trusting the same God after that to keep you together as a family you're trusting the same God after that to provide for your church you're trusting the same God after that to provide whatever it is in your life that needs to grow up and be provision for you. It's the same God that killed them. It's the same God that saved your soul. That's awesome. That's wonderful. That's hallelujah. But my friend, if we don't live after that, trusting the same God, we'll be in big trouble. Right. And here's why. Because there was a there was an oddity amongst the people then, and it was this. If you had a victory, they said that's because of our God. In other words, if a nation was victorious over another nation, they said our God's bigger than your God. That, that was the mentality. It wasn't just a military victory. It was a spiritual or a religious victory, I guess we could say. And here he's saying, 
set that part aside. Here's where the real victory is. Here's where the real sign is that it affected you in this way. You see, the pagan mentality is we're just going from victory to victory to victory. God's mentality is I'll give you the victory, but I'm the same God that's going to provide the, the seed that goes into the ground and the fruit that comes up out of the ground with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let me encourage you today not to just be shouting hallelujah about being saved or maybe being in a meeting like this and making a great decision for the Lord. But let me just encourage you to go home and not just share about the good singing and not just share about the decision that you made here, but to go home and say, we're going to live now trusting Him. That's what this did to me. We're going to live now letting Him be the provision for us rather than us being that provision. Maybe you just need to make an altar right where you're at. Maybe you need to kneel down in a chair, whatever it is. Whatever God is doing in your heart right now, we want that to take place, and here's why. Because we don't want to hear about anyone going home, shouting hallelujah, having a hole shot in them as big as a basketball because no one else is is as excited as you are. What we want to hear is, is this changed my life? And when I come back next year, it's going to be just as good. Because, not because of the great victory from last year when I was here, but because how that changed my life in between. If you need to spend some time with the Lord, why don't you do that right now?